these three weeks are in part to introduce Sojourn a little bit to the Refuge Church. And uh, what's our DNA? What are the things that we're, uh, we're all about? And there's a lot of similarities between the Sojourn and the Refuge. Um, but one of the things that, uh, one of the ways that we're using these three weeks is we're kind of walking through what you could call um, a shorthand mission statement. Um, as I shared last week, Justin and I, uh, about a year ago, we, we ended up with three words that just kept coming uh, to our minds when we were dreaming about what this church could be. And those three words were belong, discover, and transform. And so last week we talked a little bit about the belong, that Jesus invites us to belong to him and his community of people as we are invited to learn what it is to be a true follower of Jesus, as we learn what it means to truly belong in the way that most matters as one of God's redeemed and forgiven children. He invites us into that safe place where we can belong as we learn to discover what it is to be one of his followers. And and this week we're moving on to that second word, which is discover. Uh, A truth to discover is kind of our theme for today. And we're going to go to a new passage, a different passage that kind of inspired these thoughts for Justin and I uh, from Matthew 13, uh, verses 43 and 52. I'm going to invite my friend Zach, who's uh, one of the members at the Refuge Church, to read our passage for us. If you all would uh, stand in honor of the reading of God's word as he comes to do that. Listen as I read. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. A lot of you met my son Max last week. I think it was his first or second time here at Sojourn. Uh, He's two years old. And uh, he is going through his two-year-old construction vehicle phase. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you remember what that one is like. Um, He has been getting a lot of toy uh, construction vehicles for Christmas and his birthday from all his relatives. Um, Recently at a trip to his grandpa and grandma's out in Iowa, he came home with a a very intricate, detailed uh, little toy of an excavator and a backhoe. Um, I learned what those are from my two-year-old son, and uh, I I do think that the most common word uh, said in our house right now is excavator. We hear it hundreds of times a day. He is obsessed. And uh, it's, it's, it's like the first thing that he talks about when he wakes up, the last thing he's thinking about before he goes to bed. It's just always on his mind, these construction vehicles. Um, but one day as I was um, 
sitting with Max on the couch watching a 1990s VHS documentary on Caterpillar construction vehicles, as one does, uh, we, it occurred to me that Max has actually never seen any of these things in the real world. He has toys. He's seen pictures and images of these things, but, but that was as close to reality as he could get in his mind. But then one morning in the summer, um, Max awoke to the sight of a real-life excavator rolling through our front yard. See, this summer, somebody bought the two acres that our house overlooks in Cadillac, and, um, and there's not a house there right now, and so the guy hired a bulldozer, a loader, a dump truck, and an excavator and, uh, to clear the field, to level the field. And um, for the very first time, Max, Max saw these things, and it was the greatest day of Max's life. Just, <laughs> I actually threw my back out, lifting him onto all of these vehicles. There, there were two others that you can't see in these pictures, but my back was hurting for a week after, after this moment because he just kept wanting to keep going up and down, up and down. Uh, you can imagine that Max was no longer content with his toys. <laughs> he was no longer content with the documentaries. He wanted the real thing, and unfortunately for me and Julie, the real thing was sitting outside our front window for him to stare at all day long. Um, he had finally discovered the real thing, and no longer would anything else satisfy him. He'd left the old way behind, you could say. And so really, the point of my sermon this morning is please pray, please pray for us. <laughs> Parenting is hard. <laughs> I don't know what to do. In the first of the parables that we read, the first two parables that we read from Matthew 13, uh, we, we kind of get this uh, similar experience to what Max had in our front yard. Two men who found a treasure that just radically changes their lives, and they would never be the same. Um, the first parable is about, uh, well, it's actually kind of something like we would find in a children's book, isn't it? Uh, images of pirates in treasure maps and buried treasure, they kind of come to our mind as, as we read that. But uh, actually, buried treasure was, was pretty common in that day. Banks weren't really something that people used. They weren't really around a whole lot yet. And so a common way for most people of keeping their money and their valuable possessions safe was to go out somewhere secret on their property and bury it. And, and this man is walking out in a field and, and supposedly, just by dumb luck, finds this buried treasure. And so maybe it belonged to a previous owner of the land who had forgotten about it or maybe who had passed away and the current owner wasn't aware of it. Whatever the case may be, this man that Jesus tells us about stumbles upon it and immediately goes to the owner of the property and, and tries to buy it from him. And the price tag is so much that it costs him everything that he owns. All of the money that he has ever, uh, all the money in his savings, all of his possessions, he has to sell it. He immediately goes and sells everything to buy this land because it's not a hard decision for him. He knows the value of the hidden treasure because he's seen it. He knows that there's more money in that treasure chest than the money that he has. It was an immediate profit. Now, if this was like the only parable that Jesus ever taught us, I, I think we would be forgiven for wondering, is God like teaching a prosperity gospel, like a health and wealth type of message here? Is Jesus saying like, hey, if you just 
give God or the church just a little bit, God's going to multiply that tenfold. I mean, some people unfortunately preach that message. We can imagine that the amount of money that this man found in the field was so much more than the amount in his own bank account. And so, if this was the only parable that Jesus taught, maybe we could be forgiven for wondering if that's what he meant. But it's the next parable that actually kind of corrects that, that thought because Jesus tells us about another man who actually sells everything that he has for an object that can't buy him a house, for an object that can't pay for his food or all of his other everyday needs. The second man is a merchant. He, he's a seller uh, of, of pearls, and pearls were a, uh, they're, they're a form of wealth back in this day, but they're not the same sort of wealth that like gold or silver coins were. Pearls are not currency. Pearls are a form of wealth in the sense that they showed that you're wealthy, right? They're jewelry. They're a fashion statement. You could sell a pearl if you wanted to, uh, but you would only be able to sell it for about what you got it for, right? For whatever it's, it's worth. You're not going to make that much of a profit off of it. And so while this merchant buys and sells things for a living, we could also think of him maybe more as a collector because what drives him, what his lifelong goal isn't to make a a massive profit buying and selling pearls. No, the thing that's driving him, his motivation is to find the biggest pearl, the most beautiful pearl. He's not in it for the money. He's in it because he's in love with pearls. He's fascinated with them. And so when the merchant is walking through the market and finds the one, that biggest, most beautiful pearl, he went broke. He impoverished himself in order to buy it. Selling every single one of his other pearls that he had ever collected over the years. Now, remember, this one great pearl had nothing of superficial value. It couldn't house him, couldn't feed him. He was broke with one big pearl. That's that's his reality in life now. But he could spend the rest of his life admiring it. He could spend the rest of his life cherishing the reality that this pearl was his. See, the difference between the two men is how they discovered their treasures. One stumbled upon it by, by luck, we could say, and the other spent his entire life searching for the treasure. He had an idea of what it could be. He had an image of his mind, and then he found it. But, but what they hold in common, the, the similarity between the two is their response when they found the treasure. Both immediately recognized its value over everything else that they once held dear in life. And in joy, they sacrificed everything, laid everything else aside, for the joy of attaining that new treasure, even if it meant living a life of poverty from that moment on. Um, Jesus likes parables, right? You probably have heard quite a lot of them. He he tells uh, parables to teach people about maybe deeper spiritual realities, and he's trying to put them in terms that uh, we can understand a little better. And also because we like stories, right? Stories are captivating. We like stories because they they don't just fill our minds with information. Stories get to our hearts. Stories fill our hearts with passion and longing 
and desire and conviction. And Jesus was a master storyteller, as you can see here in these parables. But sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' parables were, were just lighthearted, sentimental bedtime stories for children. Sometimes we make that mistake. I, I, I want to maybe challenge that a little bit. Let's not make this mistake of thinking that simple, that the stories that are simple in nature, simple images or simple characters or simple storylines, that, that simple things are not necessarily uh, lighthearted or meaningless or empty or sentimental. Because more often than not, when Jesus is telling parables, he, he is actually saying extremely hard things in them. Things that would have confused his listeners. Things that would have taken them aback. Things that would have maybe even offended them. And, and these two short parables at the beginning of our passage here, they especially are not easy to hear if you really understand what he's talking about. Because he's challenging his listeners. He's warning us. You see, um, if you noticed in, in those first two, Jesus prefaces both of them with a phrase that says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven um, w- was something that Jesus taught a lot on, especially in this book of Matthew. And now when we, we hear the word kingdom, what, what we often assume is that the kingdom is like a place, right? That's the sort of image that comes up in our mind. A, a kingdom is a castle with a wall and a moat or something like that. We think of kingdom as a place, but when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as he also talks about it, his emphasis isn't so much on the place as it is who the place belongs to. The focus is actually on God, God's kingdom. And so when we hear Jesus talking about the word kingdom, we should rather think of God's kingship, his rule, his reign, his goodness, his sovereignty in this world. And so when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like these two men, a way that we could interpret that is saying that this is the sort of person who looks like a citizen of God's kingdom. This is the sort of person who looks like they belong in that kingdom of heaven. And so our question is, okay, so what does that citizen look like, right? That's what we should be asking. And in these parables, Jesus is answering our question by saying they look like someone who discovers the immeasurable value of God and his truth and his gospel and his salvation and responds to it by laying everything else aside that they once considered valuable in order to gain that new treasure. A person who belongs to this kingdom is someone who who makes God and his goodness and his truth their number one priority in life. In other words, citizens of God's kingdom are people who discover truth and respond to it with their whole lives. Uh, One of the reasons that we plant churches one of the reasons that we plant the Refuge Church is that church plants can, can function as like safe havens uh, for people who are looking for treasure, for treasure hunters, for people who are looking for meaning and a value that they hope and dream is out there 
and that they one day hope to find. Church plants are places where, where truth seekers can come and ask their questions freely, where they can discover the gospel's answers to their questions and their fears and their doubts and their insecurities, where people can observe the lives of people who have committed their life to this treasure and see, like, is there fruit in this? Is there goodness that flows out of this? Does it look true by the way that it's transforming lives? And so new churches can become kind of that refuge for truth seekers, right? They can become those safe places because, I mean, first off, church plants start small, right? When we launch in October 31st, uh, I'm not exactly sure how many people are going to be there, but like right now we're 25, 30 right now. And, and that sounds discouraging if you're used to going to a midsize or larger church, but I want you to think about the opportunity that presents. Uh, Pastor Matt, when I got my start in ministry here uh, 10 years ago, um, we had a really small youth group, a really small youth group. Like some weeks, two people would show up. <laughs> and I poured like four or five, six hours <laughs> into a lesson for two people. And I was getting really discouraged. And Pastor Matt said, you know, Eric, what I've learned in ministry is that when you have a small church, you will always wish for a bigger church. But when you get that bigger church, you will always wish for a smaller church because you will miss the time that you had with those people. You will miss the time that you had to pour into those lives so intentionally. And that's one of the things that starting a new church uh, does for us is that we start small, intentionally. We, we don't want to blow up overnight because we want to leave room and time and energy and space for all of us who are part of this church to pour into each other's lives, to have these conversations. But the second way that new churches uh, uh, help uh, create the safe place is because new churches are often started with that explicit mission, right? We're starting so that we can reach people who haven't found the answers to all of their questions yet, so that we can reach people who haven't committed their lives yet to Jesus. And so new churches, in a way, communicate to our community, you belong here. We planted this for you. We planted this church with you in mind. And uh, for Justin and I, there's actually a pretty long list of people that we have where we planted it, hoping that these people would one day show up. And then we have a whole list of blanks on that list of people that we know God is calling who we don't even know yet that we hope to meet one day. Church plants are, are saying to our community, you belong here. Yes, this is a safe place. This is for you, in fact. Now, some people call the, that approach being seeker-sensitive. And in one sense, I like the word. And in another sense, because of all the baggage and the history that has been tagged with that word, I, I, I don't want to use it necessarily when talking about the Refuge Church. Uh, maybe a better term that we could use is that we are seeker-admiring. Can we say that? Seeker-admiring? We have an admiration for people who are seekers who are, who are looking for the answers to life's biggest questions, who aren't content just going through life and, oh well, well, we'll see what it's all about when it ends. No. We admire at the Refuge Church the guts that it takes to take all of your beliefs, all of your worldview, and place it out on the table and then pick it apart. That is a scary thing, right? to have all of your, all the things that you hold dear out there and evaluating them 
with other people? That takes guts and we admire that. And if you've spent your whole life in the church, it is easy to forget just how difficult it is to believe in this. If you've spent your whole life in the church, we take that for granted. Just how difficult of of a journey it is to actually look for the answers to life's greatest questions. The belief that there's one God who created all things, the belief that there's a, the problem of evil and sin in the world, the belief that we need a savior, the belief that God is loving and merciful enough to be that savior for us. Like Jesus' parables, these beliefs, uh, in one sense, they're simple enough that even children can understand them, but at the same time, they press us, they challenge us, they confront us, and maybe they even offend us to an extent. Asking questions, looking for truth, it's hard. It's difficult, and we admire that. And, and it's not just church plants. All churches, Sojourn Church, I know this is our passion too here. Every church should desire to be the sort of place where people, no matter where they're at in their spiritual journeys, are given the space and the grace that they need as they figure things out. The church should be a place where truth seekers are welcomed, where they're admired, because we believe that God himself is inviting them to do the same, that he's inviting them in because he's shown us the treasure that, that they're looking for, and maybe he can use us to help give those answers. But there are two problems with looking for truth. There are two problems for searching for truth. First, discovering truth to all of life's most important questions, it's not easy. Like I said, we often take that for granted. Uh, for some of us, we, we stumble upon the truth like that first man. For, other, for, the, for others of us, we spend our whole lives searching for it, hoping and dreaming and wondering what the answers might be. And it's in those moments where we find ourselves uh, most frustrated or, or most confused or lost. It's in those moments where I have taken comfort as I've asked those questions. I've taken comfort in the words of one of the wisest men who's ever lived, King Solomon, because he described this whole process. And this guy's smart, this guy's wise. He, should, he of all sh- people should get this, right? But he described this process as if it's like grasping at the wind. It's tough. In the words of Agur in Proverbs 30, he writes, I am weary, O God, I'm worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I've not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What's his son's name? Acker's frustrated, and you know what? The comfort I find is that we're not alone in those feelings. Other people have felt that too throughout history. Searching for truth, it's exhausting sometimes. And some of the wisest people in history have felt that exhaustion too. So as we search for truth, we're constantly reminded of actually our limitations. The limitations of our mind, the limitations of our wisdom and understanding. That's something that's always staring us in the face. How little we understand and know. But, but there's a second problem, and maybe it's even the greater problem that we face as we search for truth, let's say that we find all the answers to the questions that we had. Let's say that all of those answers, uh, all of those questions are fully answered. 
Who's to say that you would like the answers? Who's to say that we would like the answers to all of our questions? Who's to say that we would believe them? Who's to say that we would want to respond to them? To give our life to them? You know, a favorite Bible verse to many is Jeremiah 6.16, where it says, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. We love that verse. But we cut it short. Did you know that? There's, like, more that comes after that. Uh, We should really, like, cross-reference refrigerator magnets once in a while and see, like, the full context of some of our favorite verses because there's a lot more to say than than usually we, we think because the verses that go on after this, so it's saying, stand by the roads and look. Look for those answers. What comes next? But my people said, we will not. No. No, we won't look. But they said, we will not pay attention. No. We're not... We're not going to respond to it, God. God is saying this of his own people, the nation of Israel, the people who supposedly belong to him, the ones who were supposed to follow him. Those people know God's truth, and yet they chose not to respond to it. And as I've wrestled through my own questions and doubts, uh, if you know my story, I walked away from the church for a couple of years too as I tried to figure this stuff out. As I've walked with many people through their own spiritual journeys, I've I've found out that giving yourself fully to this process of truth-seeking, to do it right, to do it well, it forces us in a posture of humility. You know, a posture of humility is content with the possibility that not every one of our questions will be fully answered to the extent that we want them to. A posture of humility is willing to believe and respond to a truth even if it's something that we don't want to hear or believe. Because not everything that we want to be true actually is. Not everything we want to be true actually is. That's the thing about truth, isn't it? Truth makes us all wrong about something. We might get something right. Hopefully we get a lot of things right through our intuition. But man, truth makes us all wrong about something. Truth puts all of us in the place where we have to decide what to do with that wrongness once we discover it. Uh, Do we respond like the treasure hunters from this parable? Do we joyfully lay everything else aside for the sake of belonging to God in his kingdom? Or do we walk away from it? Do we walk away choosing to believe that our own way or our own truth is better. That's what Jesus means in his third parable. The one that we all probably grimaced and cringed at, right? The one like, oh man, are we really talking about this today? Can we just skip over those verses? Jesus, the one about the good and the bad fish, right? The net. Jesus is, is talking about his ministry, his message. He's casting his message out like a net over a huge crowd of people, people who were following him everywhere. And it was a mixed audience. Uh, a lot of the people are listening, and listening to his truth. They're hearing the message, but not all of them are responding in trust and faith. Some people are being saved while others are being left unconvinced. And the consequences of those decisions are real, 
whether we want to acknowledge those consequences or not. And it's here that Jesus leaves us with his most severe warning. Because notice the bad fish, the unbelieving fish, if we want to keep carrying the metaphor. Uh, Do you notice where they're picked from? From the same net as the good. From the same place. Not now, but much later at the final judgment day. God's truth has been cast out like a net over all of us, and it can be tempting to think that because we're in the net, because we've grown up in church, or because we've heard this message, or because we've done a lot of good things, or because we, can't artic- or because we can articulate the gospel well, uh, it can be tempting to think that we might be the good fish, right? But Jesus, in this simple parable that could have been told to a child, In a simple way, he is telling us a very stark warning to wake us up. Because it's not enough to just hear his message. He's asking us, have you actually responded to it? Is he your only treasure in life? See, Jesus warns us elsewhere that not everyone who calls him Lord has actually submitted under his kingship under his rule. We see just a few chapters later in the book of Matthew where Jesus meets a wealthy ruler and by all accounts, this wealthy ruler, he's a righteous man. The community respects him. He's obeying the commandments. He's one of the best in town. And this man asks Jesus, what must he do to belong to this kingdom that Jesus has been preaching so much about? And Jesus, seeing into the man's heart, tells him to give everything that he has to the poor and follow him. And Matthew tells us that the man walked away sad because he was very wealthy. This man thought he loved God. This man thought he belonged to that kingdom until he realized that he loved money more. You know, it's not so much about the money Sometimes we focus too much on the money when we hear about that passage. It's not so much about the money as it was about Jesus knowing what was actually sitting on the throne of this man's heart. It could have been his work or his pride or his family or comfort or any number of things that we could fill in the blank with. It could have been anything. In all of us, though, there's this temptation to put someone or something else on the throne other than God. And so we see that these parables on one hand are um, encouraging us to be truth seekers and truth admirers, uh, or admirers of truth seekers, but on the other hand, these are also stark warnings to us, asking us to consider which kingdom do we belong to? Who sits on the throne of our hearts? And if we're willing to put ourselves in that posture of humility that I'm talking about, if we're willing to be told that we might be wrong about something, willing to be told that we're wrong about life or God, or maybe we're wrong even about ourselves, that is a hard pill to swallow, right? If you've been there, you know how hard that is. It can be hard to believe those things, that we're wrong. But man, I love the way that this novelist named Jan Martel once put it in one of his books. Love is hard to believe. Ask any lover. Life is hard to believe. Ask any scientist. God is hard to believe. Ask any believer. 
So what's your problem with hard to believe? You know, sometimes the most beautiful, the most meaningful truths are hard to believe. And yet they're so worth it. They might even be worth leaving everything else behind for the sake of gaining that treasure. But as we're stuck in this place of hard to believe, there is comfort and hope for us. The comfort and hope that we have is that while it's a hard task looking for truth, and it's an even harder task to believe it, the good news is that God is not leaving us alone in that task. It's actually not all on us. Remember in Proverbs 30, Agur says that he feels like the only way that he can find the answers to his questions is if he could miraculously ascend to heaven and then bring down all the answers back with him. He says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? What's his name? What's his son's name? There's an answer to his question. There's an answer to that question. Who has been to heaven and come down? Who's brought us God's truth? God has. God himself has. The Bible says that in John 1, that the word or the truth became flesh and lived among us. That we have seen the fullness of God's grace and his truth in the person of Jesus Christ. The seemingly unknowable God has made himself known. The seemingly distant God has come near to us. A lot of times when we talk about what Jesus did to save us, we jump straight to the cross and skip everything else that happened up to that point. You know, the cross and the grave, that's where salvation was won and that's where our focus needs to be. That's where sin was defeated. But, but the good news of Jesus didn't start there. It actually started with what we call his incarnation. This moment when God did come down to us. It started with Jesus' willingness to step down from his throne, to not leave us alone with our questions and doubts, and enter uh, into the world that he created, enter into the world that had already betrayed him, to come and seek and save the lost like you and me. The incarnation of Jesus is the good news for us truth seekers because it shows us that we have a God who wants to be known, a God who wants to show us his truth. But not only that, this God who came down, he knows our experience too. He knows what it feels like because he lived it himself. He experienced the temptation that we do. He experienced the heartache. He experienced the brokenness and confusion of this world. Our God has walked in our shoes and knows what we feel like. And so it's not just that he can save us, praise God, but he can also sympathize with us. We have a God whose heart is full of of compassion for us, and if, and if we're willing to listen to him, if we're willing to trust that his way might actually be better than our own, then his truth can set us free as he promises. We can know God. We can know God in his truth because he's come down, because we've seen Jesus. That's what he's telling his disciples in these last two verses, 51 and 52. He asks his disciples, have you understood these parables? Okay. Therefore, bring out the old and the new treasures and display them for all to see. It's a little confusing, uh, but what Jesus is talking about here is the old revelations of Moses and the prophets 
and the new revelations that the disciples have been learning from Jesus. And what Jesus is telling them to do, to bring out the old and the new treasures and put them on display, Jesus is saying, connect the dots. Connect the dots between the old and the new for people. Help them see how all the answers to our questions, how all the things that we've been waiting for and hoping for, how all of that is being fulfilled in Jesus. He's the only one that can bring clarity to our confusion. He is the only one that can make sense of this world. Connect the dots. But what about the problem of our hearts? What about our problem in our hearts? What if we don't like the answers that Jesus gives us? Well, there's good news there too. Because God promises to give us new hearts. He can change our hearts too. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week. But he promises to soften our hearts. Through the prophet Hosea, he talks about it like courtship or dating. He says, I, could woo, I, I will woo you back to me. Do you know the word woo is in the Bible? I love that. I, I, I will woo you back to me and show you a better way to open your eyes to yes, his truth is better than our own. You know, it might not seem like good news at first, but it is good news that sometimes we are wrong. It's good news that the world doesn't depend on my definition of truth. Because even with my best intentions, that world would fall apart. I mean, we should be really worried, actually, if we think we're worshiping a God who never disagrees with us. Because it might just turn out that the God we're worshiping is us, not him. I mean, just look at, the li- look at how our lives go when we get our way. Look at the troubles in the world right now. The answer isn't in ourselves. That's not where we're going to find the truth and healing. The answer is in the only one who could save us from ourselves. Sometimes we have a hard time accepting that, that God's truth might disagree with us. But as I've wrestled through my questions and doubts, and I have had a lot of them, and I still do, even as a pastor and a church planter, I'm still wrestling through my questions and doubts. The more questions I ask and the more answers I get, the more comfort I take in knowing, or well, in in not knowing everything, I should say. I'm growing more comfortable with my human limitations and more grateful for God's limitlessness because the promise that God gives us is that his answers are actually better than we could even imagine. One of my favorite verses in Ephesians 3, the apostle Paul writes that the love of Jesus for us actually surpasses our knowledge. We should strive to understand it. We should dig deeper. We should commit ourselves to pursuing that knowledge and understanding, but even with our best efforts, it would still vastly surpass our ability to know his love for us because it's wider and it's longer and it's higher and it's deeper than we could ever fathom. So we might grow in our awareness of God's love for us over time, We may be filled with a loving and grateful heart for it, but at the very same time, we will never fully comprehend just how powerful, how magnificent, how true and merciful our God really is. It's beyond us, always. And that's why we, like these two men from these parables, 
can joyfully lay aside everything else because the sure promise of his love draws us in to follow a king better than us. It draws us in to long for a kingdom better than the ones that we could create. It's worth leaving our old lives behind and discovering the new lives that he's prepared for us. So at the Refuge Church, um, our hope and prayer is that God makes us into a church where people can search for and discover this truth of Jesus and his gospel. That God would make us into a church that offers the safety that we need to be able to ask those questions, to examine our hearts, to lay it all on the table, and in the company of people who are going to be gentle and compassionate with those hearts. But we also pray that God makes us into a, a church that has that humble posture to that we would be people who even though we think we've found that treasure, even now we would recognize our limitations and freely admit the ways that we've been wrong and respond joyfully again and again to the better way that Jesus is always inviting us into. At the refuge, we, we want God to use us like the master of the house that Jesus is talking about to connect the dots, to connect the dots between the world's questions and the gospel's answers in Jesus, pointing to the truth that we found in him and everything that we say and do. So may God call people from all across Cadillac to find our church, a place to belong and a truth to discover. Let's pray. Jesus, be merciful to us. Be gentle with our hearts. Be gentle with our pride. And be gentle with our assumptions that we know the way. We probably deserve your chastisement. <laughs> we probably deserve a harsh word. We probably deserve to be cast away, but that's not your heart. We praise you for that. God, this morning we recognize, I hope, that we are that one lost sheep. And you need to go run for us. You need to go find us. God, I pray that you would give us the new hearts to long for the better way that you offer us. That like these two treasure seekers, that we would lay every side, everything else aside to follow you. Amen.